right. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, you are an internet celebrity, and it is undetermined of you know, whether I'll, or not I'll say who you are. Um, probably will eventually. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about your your internet life and where you started and where you went and how it all unfolded. Oh, awesome. 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 I love the idea of being a, um, an anonymous, uh, internet micro celebrity. Um, and, um, the, uh, you know, maybe we'll figure out who I am and, and maybe, maybe we won't, but, um, yeah, let's talk about the internet in the, uh, the 1980s. So, so how'd you start? How'd you get on? How'd I get on? Well, um, I on was a you know meaning a meaning meant a slightly different thing at that time. Um, on at the time meant um, you had access to the internet as a social network, and well, there were basically two things that you could use the internet for at that time. You could FTP various free software, which was like you know GitHub before there was a GitHub. Um, and, and people were already collaborating on software over the internet, which was super interesting. Um, but the main thing that the internet meant was Usenet and Usenet actually is a slightly separate, it's a, it's a, a layer. It's of course a social layer above the internet. It actually originally wasn't like a lot of early, communication things it wasn't even on the internet at all it used something called uucp it was basically in some ways the ecosystem of the early internet was more defined by an operating system which was unix than the network which was uucp the sort of the proto internet as it was as a social network was a network of unix machines and so the question of how they communicated, yes, the internet was sort of the ideal way to communicate, but um, actually a lot of the early Usenet social networking and even email was conducted by something called UUCP, which stands for Unix to Unix copy. And the way Unix to Unix copy worked was that you had a Unix machine and it had a modem, and this modem you know, could also both send and receive calls. Um, and um, when it wanted to get a message from one side of the continent to the other, you had what was called a bang path, which you'll see in very old Usenet signatures. It wasn't really a thing when I, by, when I started using Usenet in the late 80s. This is really more of a mid-80s thing, but it was at least remembered at that time. Um, and a bang path basically said, well, it's going to go through a machine with this name and a machine through with that name and, you know, and, and arrive at its destination through this sort of explicit route of well-known famous nodes, which were just machines with one word names. And, um, you know, this lent this, um, it sort of gave in as much as it was remembered or mattered, it sort of meant that the internet had this kind of shape, which was interesting because now it's just like sort of instant connectivity from, from one end to another. But, you know, this era of manual routing was still kind of in the memory at that time. But so to answer the question without digressing, what I got access to was Usenet. And Usenet was basically the sort of the, the distributed Reddit that was, uh, you know, far superior to anything that Reddit could possibly, <laughs> could possibly be. And this is why so many people are sort of wistful for this era is that basically they sort of seemed, you know, they saw the future and it seemed to work and then it kind of stopped working and, and it, it died, it crashed, it exploded. It's like, imagine if you'd lived in ancient Athens and ancient Athens is sort of this glimpse of kind of the future in this kind of openness and world of speech that it creates. And you're like, this is the future. We've clearly found the way that human beings are meant to live. And then Athens is conquered by Sparta and the whole thing turns into this like gross Hellenistic mon monarchy of, of Alexander the great. And, uh, and, and you just have 
you know, you're just, you have this feeling that history has gone backward. And that's basically the, you know, what you see when you connect early Usenet to like uh, web services today. Uh, that was a little rambling, but did it answer some of your questions, uh, DF? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it answered a lot of it. It, you know, definitely generated so, some new questions. Um, I, I guess the, the immediate thing is, you, you know, what is like even early Reddit couldn't, uh, you know, reach the same heights as uh, peak Usenet? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, one one thing that I always say is that the quality of the social network always always declines uh, because it's always it can't recruit people that are better than the network, but um, only look can recruit people who kind of look up to what's going on the, on on the network now. Um, and it was that the thing that made Usenet sort of impossible to replicate was simply the community of people that was on Usenet. Early Reddit had a fairly high quality of community. It wasn't a sort of, it wasn't as varied. There weren't as many kind of different kinds of people. And they were, I mean, I think you've just seen, you've seen some quality decay in society as a whole since the eighties. Uh, you know, but when you imagine early Usenet, basically, what you're seeing is a population of maybe, um, you know, a hundred thousand people or something. It was very hard to estimate how many people actually used Usenet, but it was probably something like that. And those hundred thousand people are all people who are probably into technology in some way, although not certainly into technology in some way. They are students at, you know, leading universities. They work in the, you know, nascent technology industry. And um, so you have this very well-selected group of people in a, you know, dissimilar, not dissimilar way. I always compare it to uh, to Burning Man. Have, have, you, have you been to Burning Man? Are you a, a burner? I, it's way too dirty for me. <laughs> yeah, no, no. This is my and, and my feeling as well. But uh, the I guess in a number of different senses. But um, the when you basically look at why Burning Man works, you know, for burners, it's because this is a very very homogenous group of people in a sense, and it you they experience that sort of inspiration of homogeneity where everyone you meet at Burning Man is basically essentially an old friend you haven't met yet, and you can just you can connect with these kinds of people who are people like you if you're a burner, um, just very very easily, and sort of the one of the th there's a number of things that sort of keep that going one of them is that you know burning man is is filthy and unpleasant and hot and cold and you know all these these gnarly things and so you have to basically overcome that gateway it's hard to get a ticket that's another you know nice little aristocratic touch um and you know but if you held burning man basically in fort lauderdale uh you know in spring break and tickets were 20 bucks a pop uh you know burning man would quickly disappear and it would just become fort lauderdale or something like no one would go uh you know and in in some ways that's what happened to usenet when it became it sort of fell out of this institutional structure the other thing that was interesting and useful about usenet was that everyone almost everyone because some companies started to sell like unix accounts um but still most of the people on early usenet were on usenet through some kind of institution and so that institution, the policies of that institution were sort of the default kind of administrative response for abuse. So in a way, it was this kind of decentralized governance where you basically sort of knew that if you did something nasty on the internet, some sysadmin would email some, you know, some sysadmin somewhere else would email some sysadmin at your school or whatever. Um, and um, 
the people at your school or whatever, that, that sysadmin would email the administration at the people at your school, and that would be basically how any kind of abuse would be dealt with. And so, you know, this standard is inherently decentralized. It's inherently sort of personal and close to you, and it worked very well. I mean, people, there's a famous Usenet incident where the first piece of spam was ever sent to Usenet, and people were just outraged at the idea that someone would like dare to spam Usenet. And, and it was outrageous. I mean, it was just like, who, who did this, how, what, you know? Um, and, um, the and and that was you know the the uh, the Cantor and Siegel in you know incident. It was a law firm that decided to like post ads for the law firm to I think every news group, and in a just totally like shameless way, and you know the, but there was sort of no, you know the standards were much looser because this was not an era of heavy censorship per se. The standards were much looser. And, um, and they were applied in a decentralized way. And the audience was just of extremely high quality and included, you know, it had a, a wide mix of age ranges. It had a wide, wide mix of sort of not necessarily professions really, but like there were always people who got into Usenet who were not associated with any kind of specific technology thing. And that really helped season the mix with generally interesting people. Um, but it was, yeah, it was just like, it was a, it's a lost civilization that, you know, we still basically mourn every day. Um, and, um, uh, I think most used, you know, of course it's all public and I think most of it has been, um, you know, saved. So you can go back and read my Usenet Juvenilia if you like, it mostly will be under, uh, I think cgy at cs.brown.edu. And well, that's my, that's my Brown over us. So that's up until 92. And then I had some Berkeley address, but it was always through an institution and basically doing that through, I mean, that sort of gating sort of the, 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 that sort of decentralized yet, you know, very effective gating and governance was, I think really a lot of what made that civilization work. And of course, when the floodgates were, Flow, you know, thrown open, I think at a certain point, you know, somebody gave, you know, all of AOL access to Usenet. And that was just like, you know, immigration from the wrong side of town. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there's this sense in which basically you're always looking for how can the same problem be solved without this sort of accidental elitism because sort of the accidental nature of the elitism meant that sort of nobody bothered to defend it, that it sort of didn't believe in any of the things that made old Usenet an elite space. They just, you know, it just happened that way. And so they did not have a system that basically scaled to including all of humanity. It was just, it was one of these high trust societies. And so, you know, it's almost like, like you can't step in the same river twice, but how to create an effect like that is, um, I don't know, it's a fascinating question. Um, but yeah, something, something was lost there that was, you know, superior to what we have today in, you know, I mean, what is Facebook, but AOL, you know, using the internet as a modem, right? That is just vastly superior to what we have today. It's my, my brain was just like lighting up as you were speaking because, um, so like my listeners will know that I'm very passionate about Tumblr. Um, and I think mm. like the number one problem with Tumblr is it removed all the barriers of entry for fandom. And right. what made like fandom great, I mean, it's exactly what you're, and, and it didn't matter what, which fandom is it, but it's exactly what you're describing. Like you, can't actually include everyone and that's not having these these barriers of entry and um the various like initiation rituals like removing all right. of this is a huge i mean you see it throughout society it, it, it i guess like you said it sounds like it's it's kind of a it's it's a great lens to understand other problems sure sure what so you were you a were you a tumblerina uh um, you know did you grow up on tumblr it's a big I, millennial thing tumblr <laughs> Yeah, I but I was I was a weird Tumblr user because I was never like a social justice warrior. Um, mm. I was I was interested in sort of other things, 
but I've always been online just like so much that it's kind of like my primary reality. And it's how, like my how, lo- how old were you when you when you first got online? Probably, I mean, I think my earliest memory is like seven, but it was probably a lot wow. earlier. Um, I was wow. on a computer at like two. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've just always been on on a computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you know, you don't you don't seem to feel that that's been harmful to you in in any way. Oh, I mean, it, it certainly has. Like, I'm I'm you know I, I'm not well. You've you've met me in person. I'm a little bit awkward. Um, I think I'm maybe less awkward on, online. But I, what's what's weird, and I don't know if you've observed this um, in your own life or or if this will even make sense. But I think part of my my I occasionally will have like social problems online, and I think that's mm. because. I grew, I grew up totally digitally. So I'm like remembering an older internet culture. And then yeah. I'm like clashing with people who are sort of like, they grew up in meat space and then they got online and then they got addicted. Whereas I've just been like one stream of addiction. Yeah. That old, that older internet culture, you know, is, um, is, was, is really great. I mean, you know, the great thing about the, you know, you're talking about the stream of addiction, the great thing about the way you read news on Usenet, um, uh, which is pronounced with a, a the, the, the S should be a, a Z sound, I think, Usenet. We never said Usenet. Um, I'm just correcting you there. But uh, the, the way that you read news on Usenet, this was often pre-bitmapped display, and so it was a character display. Um, you know, you typically did not use a mouse. Instead, basically, to just, you know, scroll through your unread messages, you basically just kept tapping the space bar. And so, you know, very early on in this experience of, like, tapping the space bar and just letting this, like, flow of information flow through me, sort of, you know, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of the doom scrolling that we all now now know so well. I already had the sense of being one of these kind of rats pressing the little cocaine bar to get more cocaine. Uh, you know, that, that, that rat feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, so inflicting, inflicting that on a seven year old is like giving the seven year old crack. Uh, you know, I, I recently just put my, um, 13 year old daughter on a social network and, um, because I have no other idea how to entertain her in the COVID era. Um, and, uh, it's producing the same glorious crackhead effect, but, uh, hopefully at least it's a good one. I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's just no, there's no choice, but to grow up that way. And the way I started getting Usenet was through my brother's feed because he when he was at college, he started getting that. And so he would like, you know, we would, we would basically doom scroll through various news groups, you know, together. Um, and, you know, his interests ran more in the direction of science, whereas mine were more literary, but, uh, the, um, not that I'm not interested in like science and shit, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's just this, like, you started to realize that at a certain point, the volume of quality content that you wanted to consume that could be produced by this network would reach the point where you could be tapping the space bar all day. And, and then, you know, at a certain point, you couldn't even keep up with all the stuff you wanted to read, right? And this was, I mean, this experience, you know, don't forget, this is like, you know, 19, um, so I get to college in 1988, but I, I was doing some Usenet reading in, in 87, I think. Uh, I don't think I posted maybe till 89, maybe late 88. Uh, no, 89. Um, cause I, cause yeah, cause I didn't, uh, um. And, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, um, like, uh, I just experienced all of these things that most people experienced in the nineties and two thousands, uh, you know, like 10 years earlier and in this completely different and interesting forum. And you're absolutely right that it had, it had its own culture and that culture has sort of, you know, fed into the kind of modern, internet culture, but, um, it's been diluted in many ways. Certainly it, it all had this kind of default <coughs> kind of libertarian light perspective that, you know, has largely been replaced by, I'm sorry, Tumblr culture. Um, not any, I don't have anything against, you know, those, those Tumblr people, but I'm just, saying, I mean, I'm the biggest Tumblr, critic. I've written uh, maybe, you know, I've, 
I've, I've, I'm pretty much writing a book that's like Tumblr ruined America. So, you know, criticize away. I never really understood Tumblr. Can you, can you describe, can you explain the kind of power and meaning of Tumblr and just, you know, how Tumblr differed from just having a goddamn blog like a normal person? Yeah. um, So, well, first of all, like blogs or forums it's kind of hard to like find them and keep up with them. Like it wasn't, it wasn't so automatic, um, especially at that time you had to like manually go and like putting everything sure. into a feed is really, I mean, that's, that's mind killer. The feed. Yeah. Use, um, Usenet, Usenet. That was, that was, that was trivial. That was the way Usenet worked basically. Um, yeah. And you just, you doom scrolled through your feed by tapping the space bar. Your feed was a set of news groups you were subscribed to. You never saw, once you read a message, you never saw it again. Um, you could go back and, and look at it, but by default, you know, and so it was just this very smooth flow of tapping through new information. Um, yeah, I mean, that that in itself is like a very powerful mechanism, but I mean, there's a, there's a lot to say on Tumblr, but the, the, the shortest possible version of my thesis on it is that it brings uh, fandom communities all in one place. Everybody mm-hmm. knows this. They're feeding into it. And by everybody, I mean major corporations, uh, like you know, uh, media properties. Um, and it's very important to make sure the fans on Tumblr are, are happy. Uh, fandom right. communities, as I'm sure you're extremely familiar with, are extremely dysfunctional. And yes. they really are the ones who are in the weeds with like uh, critical theory and, and you know, all sorts of, of, of weird stuff. Um, and the, at the same time, um, two other groups really like Tumblr, and that's teenagers who are prone to addiction for other reasons, uh, and mm-hmm. journalists. So mm-hmm. basically, the, there being no barrier of entry and it being very addictive and it having these three groups created this monster where usually like adults would like uh, seed, uh, you know, just cra- crazy social justice ideas. Uh, teenagers would adopt it. Teenagers would you know, angstify and teenify them. And then journalists would write about it as though more people were doing these things than mm-hmm. they were and create like this false uh, media layer. And right. it just kept, you know, and it just this kept is how, This is how Tumblr became basically the gay bathhouse of woke. Yes. Ex- I mean, exactly. That's a, that's a perfect way to, way to put it. And what blows my mind is that like mainstream news actually knew this was happening. PBS did a, a short documentary on it and they were like, yeah, BuzzFeed journalists are going to Tumblr and then behaving as though, uh, you know, people really are identifying as uh, demisexual in, you know, the, like high numbers. Like, I, But that's not happening. It's like six people. Why are they saying that this is actually happening? And everyone was like, the New York Times was writing about this. Um, and so many modern day activist movements actually like exploded, partially from Occupy, which was going on around the same time, but right. also because of, you know, the the Vice, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, you know, trifecta of, of, of evil. The millennials of millennials, the axis of millennials, and and basically the, you know, like the sort of the question of why these ideas and perspectives seemed fresh and cool and interesting at the time is a very interesting one. But also, you know, there's a number of ways to speed up evolution, and one of them is kind of speeding up the mutation rate and creating little sub pools. Um, in which things can mutate very fast. And so, yeah, I, it's interesting. I hadn't heard um, sort of so many of these phenomena basically, um, you know, sort of blamed on like the phenomena that sort of started to kind of explode into mainstream consciousness more in like 2013, 20, 2014, sort of blamed on like Tumblr five years before. But I think there's probably an element of that. Yeah, I mean, I this I, I interview people about this like multiple times a day. I, I've uh, maybe I'll spam you with it later. I've I've written a bunch of like long form articles. I think like the reason I get coded um, as like you know a a talking head aspirant on the right, which is sort of one of my you know common criticisms, is because the only publications that will listen 
listen to me, even though like, again, like the New York Times is reporting on this, uh, you know, in 2011, are, you know, yeah. is the American conservative, the American mind, and they're really the only people who like treat this idea with respect, even though it's, I mean, it's written down, there's, it's very provable. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I mean, you know, when, when you say, when you say right, I sort of want to quibble with that, because there's a sense in which, um, you can just say those those outlets that you mentioned are sort of some of the best ones of doing this and then there's a there's a you know not a long tail but a kind of fat tail of the right which just sucks right you know but you know the best way the best sense i think in which you can define quote right is just absence of quote left. It's not a positive categorization at all. It's just sort of an absence of the specific kind of abstract delusion and or, you know, of, of this specific kind of kind of distortion of ideas. And, you know, to say that you're outside Plato's cave is not to say that you're inside of anything else in specific. And so I think that, you know, the best kind of, quote, right-wing things that you'll see like that, like American conservative and American mind, and um, I don't know that there's really anything else on that list, but that's fine, um, you know, because those are both really, you know, the Claremont Institute and American conservative are both really well well-led organizations. Um, and uh, the, like, so when you basically say those are sort of the only places that you can kind of tell ideas like this, I would almost say those are the only kinds of places that ideas can exist at all. I guess there's, you know, there's other, like, intellectual dark web stuff or whatever, but it's like anything that is basically is an, has an absence of the sense of being under this kind of almost like a, it's not centralized, but almost like a party discipline in a way is going to eventually be coded as right wing, even though you basically have sort of no, that also implies a sort of positive strain of like that you probably have no trace of. Does that make sense? I emphatically agree with you. And I've been, um, you know, just spamming my Substack subscribers with, I mean, basically this precise point, which is like, don't, it's like disrespectful to the concept of there being right wing ideas at all to identify as right wing when really you're just anti left. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and the size of the space of, you know, it's like the way I always describe it is, you know, imagine you're in Utah. So if you're in Utah, I believe, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, you and I are both Gentiles. Um, and so, you know, what is, what is a Gentile? A Gentile is, is a negative category like this. It, you could be a Christian, you could be a Buddhist, you could be an atheist, you could be anything but a Mormon and you will be a Gentile. And so if you basically sort of approach this from a taxonomic perspective, and you basically say, well, what are the characteristics of Gentiles? What kinds of things do Gentiles think? What will a Gentile do in this situation or that? You're basically just making no, there's just no sense in which that can be an intellectually rational procedure because your categorization is just wrong. And, um, you know, but if you're in a town with, you know, 500,000 Mormons and 60 Gentiles, of course, you know, people are gonna like categorize you basically in that way. Um, and, um, the, um, um, so yeah, I mean the, 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 um, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I I don't know. It's just it's a it's a it's a tragedy that is you know is very hard to do anything about because that itself is a counter narrative perspective. But it's sort of it's really important to 
sort of take that frame and accept it and say, you know, no, just because, you know, the only place that will publish my work is American Mind doesn't really mean that I see have anything in comedy with um, anything in common like Sean Hannity or something. Um, so, yeah. Um, the... Um, that's uh, that's my view, but it seems we agree. So agreement is boring. So maybe we disagree about something. Uh, yeah, I let, let's let's find something because on that I, I you know I couldn't be more on the same page, and it is it is my uh, you know one of these things that I th- I maybe even need to stop talking about because it is it it just drives me so cr- it's gotten to the point, and this is the last I'll say on it where I've like started to get like really passionate about like politics in other countries because I just feel like. I just need something. I don't know. It's like, I feel so homeless that I've become like, like a Sinn Féin member. And it's I, like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why is this happening to me? I'm not even joking. I wrote something for the Washington Examiner uh, uh-huh. called the, the troubles with Belfast. And then I, I, I like, it, it was a fine piece, but I'm like, why did I write this? <laughs> Who's this for? I haven't, I haven't, I haven't that, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't read that. I'll, uh, I'll take a look. Um, the, um, the, the, um, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> Ethiopia. They have a civil war in Ethiopia. I should, I should. I went on this Ethiopian podcast like a a year and a half ago, and I should go back and talk about Ethiopia because I feel that, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, yeah, they're having a civil war, and what's what's actually cool if they're there's nothing cool. There's nothing, um, uh, you know, cool about a civil war. Um, you know the, um, but. Um, um, the you know what's cool about it that said is it's it's like the armenia azerbaijan conflict is that there's actually a conflict in the world that americans don't care about and you know that's so you know first of all it inspires me to care about it right you know or at least be interested in it but it's like basically in the fight between the tigrayans and the amharans or whatever you know in ethiopia like there's no dog in that fight you basically can't you know say that um um you know, uh, Democrats, uh, it's not like Vietnam where like, you know, there's this foreign conflict in which Democrats side with one side and, you know, Republicans side with another or, or, and it's not like one of these war, you know, things where all Americans are on the same side and outraged against the Nazi Tigrayans or whatever. Um, it's just like, actually, this is like something that is happening in a foreign country over which you, the reader, have no power. Uh, and, 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 and like, that's, that's, uh, I don't know. That's that's maybe a beautiful thing. Um, you know, Belfast isn't 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 quite like this. But uh, um, yeah, I wish I, I haven't I haven't been to Belfast in uh, twenty years. It would be nice to go. Back. It's a it's but, a wonderful place. Um, my my ex husband was from the north of Ireland, and I, I mean, I think that's partially where my my interest in it comes from. But it's, I mean, I lo- I love Ireland. Was I, he I, a pro- is he, was he a Protestant, a Catholic, or a Jew? Was he a? Oh God, he was definitely not Jewish. I, I, I will tell you in all caps. Um, he he's very Catholic. His dad was in the raw. Uh, you uh. know. And he, yeah, he's just a you know an Irish punk with a shaved head and Doc Martens. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, some woman can't resist that, but um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, um sorry go on i was i was gonna say it i funnily enough i met him on reddit early days mm. reddit and what what was your feeling of early days reddit if you were an early days redditor was it was it was a somewhat magical place i i have to imagine um it, it, i liked it um you know it i think things started to change um like around, it must have been Elliot Roger that started to change uh, the vibe on Reddit. Yeah. Um, I also was doing like a really messed up thing where my my username I uh, appended 1999 at the end of it, so people thought I was like 11, and mm. it that always I, I'm like, why did I? Do? But then like the other part of the username was too good to give up. I, I don't know. I, I I became attached to that persona and not that my persona mm. was a child but like the i was attached to all my karma and stuff so right. yeah it was but yeah it was it was a weird it was a weird place um it, it's obviously it's i mean it's not it's not anything now it's kind of a shithole now yeah 
Yeah, because of not not because of the site, but because of the people. Really, like the people have like turned over and are now several lowers, you know, layers lower in the you know. Well, it's too customizable human. now too. Like you could, you, you know, um, there's and they changed the layout and all of this stuff. I mean, I think like UI is really underappreciated, and it's also underappreciated that like simpler is always better and less customization in certain mm-hmm. ways it's either like less customization or you could do a lot of customization yeah. get really weird with it but none of this in between stuff interesting um but anyway back to your back to your 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 life um your life online so yeah. um moving along from usenet am i pronouncing it correctly yes okay yeah. <laughs> um that's good what ca- what what came next well, so so you know what came next was that I basically um, rage quit Usenet in um, you know I, I sort of what happened was I you know I moved to the Bay Area and in the Bay Area I got in um, uh, in into like IRL Usenet scenes, which was interesting and totally a different thing. And so my two Usenet uh, groups were um, Talk.Bizarre, which was kind of an early kind of literary. Um, I, I think actually a lot of the sort of internet literary tropes came out of Talk.Bizarre. I think there was a lot of influence on like something awful um, and stuff. And um, that was a very... Um, um, and that was sort of the main social scene that I was involved in. And then there was um, Alt.Peeves, which was a um, just a place for ranting, which I'm, I'm very good at. And, I, you know, there were all kinds of – that was mostly kind of older people. Um, Charles Strauss and I, the science fiction writer, used to um, – rant a lot there. Um, I think he considers himself my enemy now or something like that. We haven't talked in a while. Um, but like I read like, you know, Charles Strauss's first novel before, you know, it went away in, in manuscript back then. Um, it was so, so, you know, there was sort of really the, you know, these kind of nice um, communities. I basically wound up because I wound up kind of um, dating and then living with a woman from Talk Bazaar that kind of became my scene. And that scene kind of imploded in the usual kind of nerd implosion ways. Um, Or I certainly imploded myself out of it, or I and my ex imploded myself out of it. Something happened. And I was just like, by by 94, mm, 95, really, maybe, I was just like completely all you know done with these people and um and really you know just just absorb myself in work really from 95 to really up through 2007 when i started actually blogging and so you know my blog was really late in the that was kind of late in the blogosphere period which was a totally different sort of period of the web and it was funny because of course now people miss the blogosphere rightly so they should miss the blogosphere the blogosphere was awesome but it also felt like really a step down from usenet it felt more atomized and isolated and you know clearly for a naturally atomized isolated person like me it had it had benefits. Um, it was sort of more friendly to like really deeper original work, obviously, but there was also something of community that was really lost in the kind of, um, in the looser ties that are just like my blog links to your blog. You know, now, of course, you know, the, the idea of like web rings or, you know, uh, I guess Tumblr, of course, you know, was kind of full of, of kind of higher intensity technologies for making blogs into a community, which was kind of the sort of, I mean, that was really the kind of the brilliant thing about Tumblr, right? Was that we're going to blog, but it will also be a community. Um, the um uh correct or incorrect i yeah i well the thing is i feel like that was the idea but i don't mm-hmm. think that I, the the minority of people blogged in the same way people were blogging on uh you know their wordpress sites or blogspot right 
Right, 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 right. But there was always, I mean, there was definitely, there was never a word, I mean, there was a blogosphere, there was never a WordPress community or a blogger community, but there was a Tumblr community. And well, Tumblr you know didn't really missing? quite... What? Sorry. We're missing, we're missing LiveJournal because, li- but, you know, in between mm. all this is, I mean, that was, I think, uh, like, that's a great example of like a blogging community because no one's yeah. posting one line on their live. I mean, they might be if they're being emo about it, but people right. are posting like 4,000 word you know, oh, reports. Sure. <laughs> oh, sure, 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 sure. And that was, that was really, Live Journal was like, I think of that as the, like the, you know, that and Tumblr, but like, you know, are just like very characteristic of the millennial, you know, internet. Like my girlfriend who was a millennial had all this like Live Journal, you know, had this whole Live Journal life, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, like I, I sort of, I recognized that that was a thing. It was obviously a thing for sort of, you know, frankly, younger, younger, less serious people than I was. But the blogosphere was great. I mean, were you on the, you know, like, did you ever sort of, it's funny how you could sort of have like live journal posts or even Tumblr posts, like we kind of get linked to, but it sort of felt like a community within, it wasn't really part of the blog world of like blogger and WordPress. Yeah, it's it's it it a, it a different quality because like blogs are their own. Or it's like blogs are like their own little towns that might yeah. be in the same county, but you're you're all in the same town if you're on Tumblr or LiveJournal. Yeah, right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. And so you know what happened to what you know like? Can you describe the decline of Tumblr and LiveJournal? How did those things decline? Jeez, I so I think I for for me I just grew, I definitely grew out of LiveJournal. I think I stopped using LiveJournal because I was oversharing, and mm. it, it was right around right. the time I got access to Facebook, and I was like, and I was seeing people overshare on Facebook, and I'm like, oh god, oh, yeah, yeah, culture, is- <laughs> the, the culture of oversharing in the early blog world was like very much a thing, like you know, and and it was a beautiful thing because it sort of again implied this kind of high trust society. But this is why you left Live Journal. Why did you know? Is Live Journal still like why why these societies decline is of like immense you know interest to me. It's like who is the gibbon of of Live Journal, right? You know. Someone, someone, someone has to explain what happens there. Is it so or is it still just very healthy and happy and just? Oh God, not at all. It got, yeah, uh, it got bought by a by a Russian company. But I, if I if I recall correctly, what happened with Live Journal is like between um, the the new parent company purging accounts, um, mm-hmm. and I they made some kind of they made some kind of like UI change on on Live Journal. And I can't remember what exactly it was, but it forced everyone to migrate to Tumblr. And this was around 2008. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and, they, and, and then, t- so Tumblr dies. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it was dying sort of, a, it was a kind of organic death. But what really put the nail in the coffin is when they banned porn. Yeah, and then it, was there was another it. huge migration to Twitter. Um, what's right. really interesting with the, to circle all the way back to Live Journal is um, what happened. Another thing that happened there is so most people went to Tumblr, but some <laughs> people um, created a, a nonprofit uh, dedicated to fandom because Live Journal was another big like fandom hub, right. um, and they ended up creating an archive of our own, which is a huge fan fiction site. Um, so mm-hmm. I thought it was it, so all the like real nerds who were doing like free labor and creating infrastructure just went and created their own thing and they're they're right. off with their own dramas and whatever right. and everyone else uh, you know so so let's let's talk about the decline of of tumblr you know they so they basically banned porn which people took as a ban of any kind of salacious content and i guess tumblr was full of salacious content of you know various kinds probably mostly not like professional porn right but people just writing about sex or you know showing sexy pictures yeah sure right also what so there was professional porn on there oh yeah i mean the thing that's completely like underexplored about tumblr and i think is probably like you know someone's probably going to write some big uh you know like very uh woke expose about it is it was a place for sex workers um because Uh. it was really lax but this also this is what created this sort of like you know 
kids saying sex work is work is sort of like a slogan. Of course, right. there's like the, the slow like bleed through of like this has been kind of, uh, you know, a, a thread in the culture for a while. But what sure. really amplifies it is like suddenly you're, you're 14 years old. You've never had sex in your life. You're seeing these beautiful mood boards created by hookers. Um, right. Who love Lana Del Rey just like you, and right. it's suddenly well, like sex work's kind of glamorous, um, mm-hmm. and it created a whole subculture. And a lot of people, and I've, I've talked to like like dozens, like you know, or maybe I'm getting even to be like bigger numbers than that of young women who are like, yeah, I tried to be a sugar baby, even if it was just like one time, um, because wow. like yeah. it just seemed really cool on Tumblr, and like nobody nobody t- like people will tweet about it in sort of an offhanded way but nobody's willing to say like no i actually talk to people and like uh, here's here's a unrelated tangent but it's it's i think very important did you know that there are no good studies of tumblr like there the sample size is always like they cap it at like <laughs> 50 people because the quote unquote search function like isn't good enough i've talked to <laughs> hundreds of people i have the biggest sample size ever of tumblr users and i'm just some bitch with a blog i mean it's just crazy to me (laughs) right that's so that's super interesting that's super interesting so basically like tumblr's you know like you had this whole essentially you know it wasn't so much that sort of most people on tumblr were directly affected by the the ban on porn they just felt that it had created this immense cultural mismatch between the sort of site management and the site users so it it was sort of both um that was that was a huge that was a huge part of it um and these kind of like cultural mismatch things happen on a lot of different sites. I remember in, I believe, I want to say either 2004, or 2005, um, something happened, something similar happened on DeviantArt. And a mm-hmm. lot of people moved off DeviantArt because, they, I mean, basically they're like, I don't like the way this site is run and it's against the people. And there's always like this real sort of like, you right. know, it's, it's the people versus the site. Um, and I think yeah. that's a really interesting conflict that you see like throughout, you know, throughout sure. tech. Well, you'd see it throughout tech in basically your age because, um, you know, as I said, one of the, there could be no people versus the site in Usenet because there was no site in Usenet, right? And and so like that conflict simply could not exist. It was a you know like it wasn't even a community governed central thing. It was, I mean, the governance of Usenet was super interesting because it was basically, it was something called the backbone cabal. It was sort of this informal cabal of sysadmins who had just been delegated the authority to run things by, you know, like they were the people that had basically built the place. So it was theirs. And, um, and they kind of kept a kind of, I mean, Usenet was so amazing because it had this like, it actually had an ontology, which was like managed collectively. It had a lot of collective governance, but there was no, you know, users versus the site because there was no site. And that's like, that's impossible to sort of bring back without something decentralized. Um, well, you sort of see, you sort. I was, I was reading a really old article uh, about, it was like Second Life or The Sims Online. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, this was like from like back when like Salon was publishing interesting yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Yes. The, the Salon, the Salon <laughs> article about Second Life, like so 1999, right? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. Well, they were talking about like how like users would, like people would, you know, scam each other and there'd be these sort of like digital rapes a la that like Julian mm-hmm. Deval yeah. piece. And they, but people would create like digital rape. Sorry, go on. uh, People people would create like shadow governments and they would call themselves like, yeah, we're shadow governments. And we're basically like these vigilantes who will like, you know, make sure this, these kind of attacks aren't happening. And I'm like, that's, I mean, that kind of still exists in some communities, but it's like really interesting. Like this stuff is, reported well, on like, written down you have like you have like eve online you know political structures that emerge in that um you know that's a game so it's a little different um but uh, yeah now i mean this is like it's it's the the set of laboratories that have, that have been created so but anyway the decline of tumblr was like it declines because people are leaving because they have a develop have developed a user versus site you know complex you were like all these people went to Twitter from Tumblr. I'm like, but they didn't certainly didn't go to Twitter to post porn that they couldn't post on Tumblr, right? Well, part, I mean, p- 
partially. Um, it, you know, uh, obviously, like sex workers can't use Tumblr anymore, and that right. that's a big part of the site. And even if they're not actually um, actually doing sex work, there's also like this sort of like contingent of uh, you know, like there's sex work adjacent, and it's like there's yeah. this or weird sex thing that, positive, you know, sure. like yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of a lot of these people moved to. Um, you know, well, you know what's, what's interesting is a lot of them move to move to TikTok now, and you see hmm. TikTok really is spiritually a successor to Tumblr. But TikTok is very uh, strictly censored, and it's just yeah. people just get over it and they work around it. Um, and I, I, my question is like, you also see people doing this um, on like Neopets and Habbo Hotel and Club Penguin, which also had very, uh, you know, very active they were for communities, kids, right? They were for kids, so they were very strictly censored. But like, I don't understand when people decide, like, ah, we'll work with the censorship, and oh man, the censorship is oppression. So it's it's a weird it's it's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a matter of how those. I mean, <laughs> if you want to censor, you should definitely start out censoring because then people will basically take it for granted as the structure of the site. But when you basically create when you attract a community that are the people that you want to have without censorship because of the people who actually kind of in a sense don't need to be censored who can create an interesting community that doesn't have to be censored even if that that interesting community would have like sex workers in it um you know then you know you sort of can't change that i mean it's like this peter Thiel line that you know any company whose foundation is flawed you know cannot cannot succeed it's very easy to create a society with a sort of a flawed foundation and part of that is like actually if anything it's easier to you know retract rules than to you know contract them um it's easier to basically say, okay, we're going to liberalize have a hotel until have a hotel is this like, you know, loose place full of like porn and sex workers, you know, than, than to turn Tumblr into have a hotel. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think you're right there. And I, I think like this is, you know, it's, it sounds so intuitive when someone actually says it out loud, but it's very easily forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, um, and so, you know, the death of the blogosphere, I basically, I think Google, uh, you know, has a lot to answer for there because Google has kind of turned the internet into this like search desert. Like, you know, um, um, it, it's just like, you know, at a certain point, it becomes actually impossible to to find high quality user generated information. And once that happens, users just don't generate the information. They're just like, why should I post into this void, right? Because, you know, if someone tries to search for something, what they'll get is like 16 zillion recycled, half copied of each other mainstream media articles um, and a bunch of like SEO, you know, spam trying to sell you something and they will not see your post about the subject. So why even bother, right? And, you know, it's it's really, you know, the death of the blogosphere is is really uh, sort of the second, you know, tragedy. It's like the blogosphere to Usenet is like the Byzantine Empire versus like the Roman Republic, but then even the fucking Byzantine Empire, like, you know, gets turked, right? You know, and, and uh, I still, I don't know. I don't know if my Google theory is sort of strong enough there because the blogosphere kind of worked without Google. Something else maybe happened there. Um, but well, then people, of course, you sorry, know, they, pe- people put in, got like plugged into the Google IV, I think is mm-hmm. part yeah. of it. Right. Right, right. And so they basically lost the skills of exploring the internet without Google. And then basically Google is like, you know, oh, you know, what can we, uh, what can we sell? What does, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Google started putting their thumb on the scale in really fucking weird ways. And um, the, uh, yeah, what a tragedy. Um, but uh, yeah, go on. Um I, I mean, I, I'm really curious. Also, I, I guess to to rewind a little bit, like how your 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 blog started growing, and y- you know what the what the trajectory there was. Um, oh, I just I you know I I've been a I've been a you know I've been commenting on other blogs a fair amount, and you know people would look at my long comments, and they were just like, you know, it's like you you, you look at a couple doing a PDA, and you know you'll be like <laughs> get a room, you know, and they'd be like get a blog. 
And, uh, you know, eventually I was like, okay, I'll get a blog. And, and yeah, I, I just, I never, you know, certainly never expected it to have any of the impact that it's had. I was just like, well, you know, I should start posting these in a way that is, uh, is sort of permanent. I, you know, I've, I've many, wrote many interesting comments that have long since disappeared into the void. And, um, the, um, uh, and yeah, so I started a blog and, you know, at the time it was like, you know, the idea that like blogger, I mean, so much of the early libertarian ethos of the internet remained that the, the idea that like blogger would censor blogs by like content was just utterly bizarre and unthinkable at that time. It was like, and, and and it was because essentially by building Blogger, what the people who built those services were doing were saying, okay, the old way of doing these things where you actually maintain a website and put things in your public HTML directory or whatever is just too much work for people. So let's just have a central site, which is actually not a network of separate websites, but actually just one site, which does it all for you. And people were like, yes, this is definitely easier than editing HTML files, right? Um, and what they, of course, were giving up there is they were giving up a real network for a fake network. I mean, social, you know, Facebook isn't a social network. Facebook is a social server, right? You know, and it's it's like, you know, and the... Um, um, what they didn't realize was that they were creating a pressure point that would eventually, that was like a single point of failure for the whole network that, that would eventually become compressed. And now it's like, you know, yeah, you can't have a blogger blog that is like anti-vaccine misinformation. Like what, how would you expect that, that, that would be okay. Like, you know, like, and, and that, that, isn't really, I think, a mistake that a lot of people make is to think that that's coming from the tech companies. It's not coming from the tech companies. It's coming from the pressure that the press puts on the tech companies, where they're like, we must hold Google you know, accountable for these blogger blogs that are advocating vaccine misinformation and causing people to die, right? You know, and it's like, well, you know, there's actually maybe nothing about that statement that's sort of literally wrong, but you should sort of think maybe again about kind of the world that you're living in and, and what that produces. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's really sad seeing all these civilizations die, but um, you know, what else is history, but a list of dead civilizations. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I'm with you. And I'm, I'm especially with you that like, the media doesn't. I think like they're getting more, they're more heat, but I still think that the 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 kind of parasitic relationship between tech and media still isn't like people just sort of broad stroke media media bad. But there's like more to that story that I think is worth kind of unpacking and being like, well, yes, but also here's why tech they're bad. Tech created an attractive nuisance for the media. They created a uh, for I hate the word media. I, I try to say press. You know, tech created an attractive nuisance for the press. They they basically created this pressure point, and that pressure point was going to get pressed. And like you know, if one journalist didn't do it, another journalist would. And because basically there was just someone to hold accountable. There was someone to go to war against, and so to the extent that basically, you know, it's like you, you created the button that blew up the world. You didn't press the button. I'm like, okay, but you still thought the button was a good idea, you know? So perhaps there's something to what you say in that sense, but I don't, I don't really know how it could have happened in any different way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess you're, you're right there. I just, I just feel like there's this other piece where, um, you know, it's at some point everyone kind of needs the press too like there's this weird thing where like the press you need you you want journalists wherever you are at first so because that's how information spreads but then they mm -hmm. become a problem um mm -hmm. and then they start they but they also create controversy like intra-community controversy and keep people excited and then they start attacking you i don't know there's yeah. all these different weird things that are that are going on there and um uh, but to, to get back to get back to blogs, um, I mean, I want to ask the sort of like low hanging fruit question of what what do you think of Substack? Uh, what do I what do I think of Substack? I mean, you know, Substack is is great because um, 
it really lets you operate a blog as a business. Um, they also, I think, have gone to some, even though they are a single point of failure, I think they've gone, gone to some lengths to not be a pressure point. I think they've learned from the lesson of like, like just, I, I think they're, they're, they're doing that very, very, uh, very carefully and effectively. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to me like, I feel like Substack it, it sort of Substack doesn't have this kind of pressure point of being like involved in the advertising business where you can basically pressure all these advertisers to like, you know, um, um, do shit. Um, and so it's actually relatively hard for the press to pressure them. They're inherently in competition against the press. So that gives them the sort of adversarial tone for kind of resisting these things. Uh, I think that's very solid. I think that, um, you know, sort of enabling people to basically monetize their fan base as a business is something that is just a no brainer. Uh, it's a little, you know, the, of course, that puts you in the world of being a person who has to maintain a fan base, which is not always the easiest thing in the world. Um, but, um, you know, for those of us who have fan bases, it's it's absolutely divine. Um, and Do you yeah, have a I, sense um, for when your fan base started to develop and sort of ha- like how that went or was it did it just totally blindside you? Um, I think it mostly blindsided me in part because when I ran a blog on blogger, I never read the comments. And so, you know, you definitely started to see that sort of these memes and things were being shared, but it was sort of, it was, it was, you know, it was gradual. I mean, there's this one, you know, meme that I, invented or at least borrowed, you know, in like 2007. Um, and, uh, you know, started kind of developing that. And it was such a good meme that it instantly got stolen by these other communities, you know, people associated mostly with, with these other larger communities. It, and then it sort of became basically universal. And it was just sort of funny, like hearing not only responding to like seeing this meme in the wild, but like my wife would respond to it and she would be like, oh yeah, you know. And then, you know, it's sort of at at the first point it was like, oh, I saw this, you know, it was like seeing a rare animal in in your yard. And then, you know, your yard is actually infested with the animal um, and its droppings become a problem, you know, (laughs) And, 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 and it tries to get in the door, you know, and, and, and sort of, you know, eventually, um, you know, this meme was and is basically everywhere and is sort of taken as kind of a normal, normal part of the cultural English language. Um, and again, I didn't invent it. I only stole it and then people stole it from me, but, you know, sort of watching the progress of things like that has definitely been, you're, you're sort of like, especially, you know, when these things are really aren't spread through the kind of official means of idea spreading, you're like, yeah, there's actually like, you know, uh, you're just like, wow, this actually kind of works in a way. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think, uh, you know, being at all successful in adulthood is mostly a matter of like doing things that you have some abstract reason to think will work. And then sometimes they actually turn out to work, which is really weird. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's sort of what, what blogging was like. It was like, well, I'll just write and then people will find what I'm writing interesting and sort of begin to catch on to, and, you know, vary from it in various ways. And, you know, that's, I guess, what happened. Um, I wouldn't advise most people to bet on that happening to them, but, um, you know, it appears to be, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the problem with writing is just that it's a tournament economy, right? And tournament, tournament economies like suck. 
and they suck for almost everyone involved in them and and winning these tournaments where a tournament economy is anything where you're just like either a rock star or a starving musician and there's like almost nothing in between and there are almost no rock stars right and so you know from the perspective of someone i don't know if i would call myself a rock star but this this kind of economy has certainly worked for me you know you're basically just like i'm really hesitant to you know sort of skip to the obvious lesson of in the future everyone will be rock stars no like i don't think that really exists uh and i think that it takes a lot of luck to be a rock star in any circumstance there's something like and so i'm i'm more conflicted about the rock star economy than you might think if that makes sense yeah i i mean i i'm trying to i i I find myself and it, this wasn't intentional, or and it's certainly not an enthusiastic. But I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm a slave to it, and I, I will often uh, wake up in like a cold sweat, and I, like, uh, like I'm gonna just be an obscure blogger until I die. No one, you know, right, 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 right. <laughs> well, yeah, because you, you've basically gotten yourself into this profession where you have to, you, you have a brand, you have to be a rock star. Your life depends on like. You know, uh, I don't, you know, maybe you have some kind of a day job or like, you know, barista or something, but like really your goal is to be a rock star. And um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I've heard of you. Uh, <laughs> well, I will say I do, I do have a, I do have a real day job. I, I, I work in tech. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I am also on thin ice because I work in, <laughs> work yeah, in tech. Right, 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 right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say, uh, I mean, quitting one's quitting one's day job is is a you know a difficult. I would I would never. Um, okay. You would never quit I, your day job. Well, I mean, unless you know, if if my if my boyfriend becomes my husband and I have mm-hmm. the, the means to to quit my day job, then then I, I certainly uh, will. Yeah. But but not you know not in the service of, of default friend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, I I guess you know I don't want to keep you forever. Although you know, I, although I'm, I'm tempted to to keep wasting your time, but um, yeah, I guess I I'll have... I, I'll close this on on one on one final question. Um, what do you think of Haskell? Should anyone learn it? Is it is it worth it? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's fine. Uh, you know, it's a little. Um, it's just it's a very it's a very academic language and, and it has this tone of it's, it's like, it's so there's this sort of tone of things being mathy and European. And so I kind of, it has this sort of European quality to it. It's like a language that should be in a black turtleneck really. And, 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 and so I'm just like, you know, here's this, it's it's like it's a thing of sort of beauty in many ways but its beauty has a perverse quality and so you're always like you know with a language like that it's like a beautiful woman who you probably shouldn't date but maybe you should date her i i don't know uh you know but that's basically what i think of haskell if if it's not if in you know 2021 you can still compare programming languages to women um, well, on this but, podcast, you certainly can. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. All right, I have I have IT problems over in the uh, my daughter's computer has failed or something, and so I must go fix it. But this has been um, greatly pleasurable. And um, what is this podcast called? Does it have a name? 